Boy, what a wonderful thing. Well, good morning, uh, Dawson. Uh, and may I just say, now having observed uh, three baby dedications in three services, you guys have really good babies here. <laughs> I don't know if it's always like this, but you know, a baby dedication can go south in a terrible hurry, but it did not happen today. So you've we're off to a great start so far. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful children. Um, so well-behaved, these babies. Uh, my name is Michael uh, Kelly, and it's so, uh, so good to be able to see you again this morning. It was, it was wonderful to meet you last week, and I'm so glad to be able to continue this series uh, in the second week today. Um, you, you'll notice in your worship guide this morning that we have created a, uh, a place where you can take notes on the message. And the, the text, which we've already read, is listed for you there. And if you want to use that during the sermon today to take notes about what the Lord is speaking to you, it's there as a resource for you. Um, this has been a neat weekend uh, for my family. My family was here in the earlier service, my wife and our three kids. Um, and one of the reasons that we wanted them to come with us this weekend is because we used to live uh, just a few miles from here. I think I might have mentioned last week that I was a seminary student uh, here at, uh, at Beeson Divinity School uh, about 15 years ago. And so yesterday we were able to drive our children around and, and show them the old apartment where we used to live. And it's still the same color it was then and it hasn't been painted. And, and uh, walk around the campus a little bit and, and uh, some old memories uh, there and share with them. It was, a, it was a neat time. And it made me think of uh, Homewood Middle School, which used to be literally kind of in the backyard of Dawson, um, right back up here. Now, when we moved to Birmingham, my wife uh, got a job teaching sixth grade math and science at Homewood Middle School. And it was her first teaching job she had ever had, so 21 years old. We pull into Birmingham, Alabama with all of our worldly possessions in a very small truck and uh, unload it and then immediately go to the school and do all the things that a sixth grade math and science teacher does. We, we hung everything on the bulletin boards and we got all the notebooks ready and, and prepared for that first day of school. And, and so my wife would tell the story that she came to the first day of school and introduced herself to these sixth graders and said, good morning, my name is Mrs. Kelly. And, I'm going to be your sixth grade math and science teacher this year. And she told them a little bit about herself and a little bit about our, our family and a little bit about what we were doing there and told her how excited she was to be able to meet them and to, you know, to guide them on this educational journey that they were going to go on together. And then she opened up the floor and she asked them, now students, do you have any questions for me? And then almost in unison at the same time, these sixth graders, sixth graders said together, who are you for? <laughs> Which was a very confusing question for my wife. She didn't understand the context of what they were saying. They said, who are you for? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders and it was like, I don't know, Jesus? Can I say that, public school? I don't know. So the sixth graders explained to her that Birmingham is a city divided. And if you're going to live here, then you got to declare. You're either going to be a fan of the Alabama Crimson Tide or you're going to be a fan of the Auburn Tigers. And if you think we're going to learn anything about math and science until you tell us who you're for, then you are sorely mistaken. And she tried to reason with these sixth graders. She tried to tell them that we were from Texas. And so we knew a lot about Texas football teams. And then she tried to tell them that she didn't really care that much for football in general. 
And she tried to explain to them that she didn't see what bearing it had on her ability to teach math or science whether she was going to wear crimson or whether she was going to wear dark blue. She, she explained to them that she didn't even understand why she had to devote a whole Saturday in November to some football game that had to do with the element of iron. She had no idea why it was so important. But they pressed the issue. They wouldn't allow her to remain neutral. And so that was the day that my wife declared that from that moment forward, for all time, for our family, as long as we shall reside in the South, that we would be fans of one of those teams. (laughs) No neutrality in the middle school that day. You can't sit on the fence with an issue like this. Not like, not with an issue like this. You've got to declare your allegiance either one way or the other way because you cannot have it both ways. And I guess that serves to show us that there are some issues in the world about which you cannot simply take a neutral stance. That you have got to declare your allegiance. Now, if it's that way about an issue like football in a southern city like Birmingham, Alabama, how much more does the issue of Jesus require us to declare our allegiance? Or to put it the opposite way, when it comes to Jesus, there is no such thing as neutrality. It is an absolute impossibility. Even if you seek to maintain a posture of neutrality, you are, in effect, choosing a side when it comes to the issue of Jesus. It is impossible to remain neutral when it comes to the issue of Christ. It reminds me of another text, in addition to the one that we'll look at in depth this morning, from Matthew chapter 16. And you might remember this. Matthew chapter 16 takes place as Jesus is sort of reaching the apex of his popularity among the crowds. And so he goes to his disciples and he takes a public opinion poll. So he says to his disciples, I'm, I'm kind of getting a name now. and People know a little bit about me and what I do and that kind of thing. So let me ask you something, boys. Who do the crowd say that I am? This is what Jesus says. Who do the crowd say that I am? And the disciples come back to him and say, well, there's a lot of different opinions out there. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus takes this issue of public opinion and makes it an issue of personal conviction. He says, okay, I understand. That's who the crowds say that I am. That's who they say that I am. Now let me ask you a question individually. Who do you say that I am? Because it's really irrelevant irrelevant who they say that I am. The question is more personal than that. Who do you say that I am? And this, friends, is the most important question in the universe. Who do you say that I am? It's the same question that Jesus asks us this morning. It's the same question that every man, woman, and child that has lived, is living, or will ever live eventually will have to reckon with. Who do you say that I am? Jesus might come to us this morning and ask a similar question that he asked the disciples. Who do the crowd say that I am today? And we could look back at Jesus and say, well, Jesus, opinions vary. Some people today say you're a great teacher. 
Some people say that you're a miracle worker. Some people say that you are a misunderstood political revolutionary. Some people say that you're a raving lunatic. Some people say that you're the son of God. And Jesus would ask the question again, moving it again from the realm of public opinion to personal conviction. He would say, okay, I get that. Now what about you? Who do you say that I am? And he would demand an answer. For there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. So when we turn to the text today in our series from John chapter 18 that you've already heard read before you, what we find in John chapter 18 is a man named Pilate who is seeking to maintain a neutral posture when it comes to Jesus. It is a man who wants this whole Jesus thing to go away. That he doesn't want to have to make a decision one way or the other. He wants to walk down the middle of the fence and remain Switzerland when it comes to the issue of this man Jesus that's been brought before him. So we might do well to ask, why? Why was Pilate so interested in neutrality? And if we dig in a little bit into the history of who Pilate is and what's happened to him up to this point, we'll come to understand some of the reasons why he doesn't want to take a stand on the issue of Jesus. So it's helpful for us to remember at this point that Palestine and the Jews were not a free people at this point in history. They weren't self-governing. Instead, they were a part of the Roman Empire. And true enough, the Romans let them have some elements of self-governance. They could do some things for themselves. It was never far from the back of their minds that Rome was the one that ultimately had the power and authority over them. Because Palestine was a Roman territory, the Romans had the power to appoint the leader over the territory, and that's who Pilate was. Pilate was the Roman-appointed governor over Palestine. Now, this was actually a pretty important role in the Roman government. But it wasn't important because Palestine was important in and of itself. So that, that is to say, the Romans didn't care that much about the Jews. They didn't care that much about their religious beliefs. They didn't have a lot of respect for them as an ethnic people. What they valued was the land. Because Palestine was a bridge between Syria on one side and Egypt on the other side. And Rome was very interested in having an uninterrupted rule throughout all of its kingdom, throughout all of the empire. So that meant that they cared about Palestine because they wanted Palestine to be a peaceful place so that they could have uninterrupted rule throughout their empire. So when they came to Pilate and appointed him to be governor, they essentially said to this man, Pilate, you have one job, one. Keep it peaceful. Just keep things under control. We don't care exactly what you have to do. We just want there to be peace here in this land. Appease them if you have to within reason, but that's what we want. We don't want you to create a bunch of social change. We don't want you to try and come up with new government programs. We just want you to keep it quiet. Just keep it quiet in Palestine. Now, up to this point, Pilate has done a terrible job of keeping it quiet in Palestine. So we look back over the course of history, we see a couple of incidents 
that tell us how bad of a job he had been doing. So history tells us that the first time, the first time that Pilate actually came to visit Jerusalem, he was going throughout all of his territory, he comes to visit Jerusalem, and he, he stays in the old palace that's in Jerusalem, which was a fine thing to do. He was the governor of the land. Of course, it's a good and right place for him to stay. But when he stays in the old palace, he brings with him a bust, a statue of the Roman emperor, and he sets up this statue outside of the old palace. Now, the expectation was that everyone who came to the palace or walked by would pay homage to this bust of the emperor. Now, that was problematic for the Jews in Jerusalem because they saw this as a graven image, and that's one of their big commandments. We do not worship any graven images. But Pilate was stubborn. He would not take this bus down. Never mind the fact that the governors that came before him actually didn't do this so that they could again keep it peaceful in Jerusalem. Pilate said, I'm going to leave it up there. People can do what they want to do. And what they wanted to do was riot and protest. So Pilate, again, first trip to Jerusalem, there's a protest that breaks out because of the bust of the emperor that's here, and so Pilate threatens to kill everyone in the crowd. The Jews call his bluff. They do not disperse. They stay there, and Pilate backs down, and the Jews win a victory. Fast forward a few years. The second time that Pilate comes to visit Jerusalem, on this visit, he knows that the water supply in Jerusalem is, is inadequate. And so he knows he has to build a new aqueduct in order to get water to the city. It's a public works project for the politician. And like any politician, he needs to answer the question, well, how am I going to pay for this public works project? But Pilate already had the answer to that. See, he knew that there was a seemingly endless supply of funds right there in Jerusalem. All he had to do was just go and take it. And so to pay for this public works project, Pilate goes and raids the treasury in the temple. He pilfers it and brings it out for himself and then uses it to pay for the new aqueduct. Well, once again, there's a riot. But see, Pilate learned his lesson this time. For this riot, he dresses his soldiers in plain clothes and sends them out amidst the rioting people. And when he gives the signal, the plain clothes officers draw their swords and they kill many of the Jews that are there rioting because the temple treasury had been raided. And now we come to this account with another mob, another riot in front of Pilate. And Pilate finds himself in a very precarious situation. Because Pilate, at this point, does not have a good reputation with the Jews, clearly. And he also does not have a good reputation with the Romans, because all they wanted was peace in the land, and these riots keep on happening in Jerusalem. So Pilate approaches the issue of Jesus knowing that this is probably my last chance to save my job. And if I mess this one up, I'm probably going to be out on the street. That's why Pilate so desperately wants to assume a posture of neutrality. He just wants Jesus to go away. He doesn't want to make a ruling one way or the other. But, as we've already said, it's impossible to remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. So let me describe for you three ways that we see here 
that Pilate tried to remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. And I think what we'll see through those three ways is three ways that we also might try to assume a neutral posture when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. First of all, Pilate tried to ignore Jesus. Because if you can ignore Jesus, you can remain neutral on the subject of Jesus. We read it in the text way back in verse 31. You'll see that Pilate more or less says something like, This Jesus guy is not my problem. This is a Jew thing. You guys have rounded this guy up. You need to go and settle this on your own terms. It is not my deal. So Pilate, first of all, tried to remain neutral by ignoring the issue of Jesus entirely. But see, the Jewish leaders at this point are all in on crucifixion. It is death or bust. They have played all of their cards. So when Pilate says, you take him and go deal with him, the Jewish leaders come back and say, no, 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 no. Because under your rules, Pilate, we can convict him, but what he's done is a sentence that is punishable by death. And you know as well as we do that we can't sentence someone to death. That has to come from the Romans. So it is actually your problem. So Pilate is forced to deal with the issue of Jesus much as he does not want to. Now we also might seek to maintain a posture of neutrality when it comes to Jesus by ignoring Jesus. We see this happen in our culture all the time because we live in a culture where people are very comfortable with talking about spirituality and faith and religion in very squishy, ambiguous terms. That we say about one person, well, she's a very spiritual person, and he's a very spiritual person, and we talk about our spiritual nature and the spiritual nature of the world and even religion in those terms, and we can even talk about God as just sort of this benevolent kind of being that appears to different people in different ways through different books, and it's all kind of the same. But the moment when the conversation stops being generally about spirituality and starts being specifically about Jesus, we cannot assume a posture of neutrality anymore. We can ignore Jesus as long as we talk about faith in the general terms, but Jesus, when we start talking about him, he requires a response to his personhood, to his teaching, to his claims. But even beyond our culture, we also tend to ignore Jesus so that we can maintain a posture of neutrality with Jesus Because it's very easy to ignore someone that you have become accustomed to. Uh, About a year ago, my family uh, and I, my wife and three kids, we went through a pretty significant change. Um, we, We bought a dog for the first time, puppy. We've never been puppy people or animal people. We had a fish one time when our oldest son was four and we killed it in two and a half days. So we... We've just never been pet people, but our children, you know, really wanted a dog. They were loving dogs, and so we, we, got, this, we got them this puppy. We, it's a golden doodle puppy. Uh, he's almost completely white and very fuzzy. Uh, he, he's a golden doodle puppy whose name is Sam. His full name is Samwise Gamgee Kelly, for all the literary nerds in the room. And, uh, man, our kids love, the, they love this dog. My, my six-year-old Christian 
when we pray at night, he goes and prays with Sam the dog. He prays with Sam the dog. They all hug and kiss the dog good night. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. From my perspective, the dog has ruined our lives. <laughs> Especially when we first got this puppy. If you've ever had a puppy, and we were not fully prepared for this, if you've ever had a puppy, you know. And you can't ignore the puppy. The puppy is everywhere and in everything and creating havoc at every time. You, are watch, you have to watch him because he's always messing something up or breaking something or chewing something or whatever. You, it's exhausting. Every time the puppy is out in the house, you gotta, you're trailing the puppy. You've got to find the puppy. Where's the puppy? Does anybody have eyes on the puppy? It's all about the puppy. You can't ignore the puppy. But something strange has happened in the past just three or four weeks in our house. It's, it's like Sam has grown out of being a puppy and has finally accepted some of the rules that we have in our house. It's like he's, he's come to accept the fact that there's only one chair that's Sam's chair and he can jump on that chair, but he can't jump on any of the other furniture. And he's, he's come to realize when he can jump up on people and when he can't jump on people and where he needs, you know, which door he needs to go to when he needs to go outside. It's, he's come to accept some of these things. And, and I have found myself, because Sam has accommodated himself to the rules of our house, that I have found it easier now to ignore him. That it'll be 9.30 or 10 o'clock and I will realize, oh, Sam is still out of his cage. He's just back here behind, not messing anything up, just taking a nap behind the couch. I've started to be able to ignore him because I have become accustomed to him. And I wonder if the same thing might be true about some of us in our relationship with Jesus. That we find ourselves in a posture now of ignoring Jesus and therefore being neutral when it comes to Jesus because, frankly, we've just lived with Jesus for a really long time. Maybe you can remember back to the first days after you came to know Jesus. Maybe it was a radical kind of conversion that happened inside of you. You became a Christian. You named Jesus as Savior and Lord, and your life was turned upside down. Maybe you remember what it felt like to feel the burning conviction of the Holy Spirit as Jesus was messing around in your life with your priorities and your habits and your thought processes. And you felt the daily conviction of sin, and you would fall on your knees and ask for forgiveness. And then you felt the sweet joy of being reminded by the Holy Spirit over and over again that even though you are a sinner, there is now no condemnation for those those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you remember what it felt like to feel like the gospel was burning a hole inside of your chest, where these words about the life that you can have and the forgiveness that you can have in Christ were just bubbling up out of you. It needed a forum in which it must be shared. Maybe you can remember those days, and then maybe you can remember slowly over the course of time, the weeks and the months and the years go by, and you just sort of become accustomed to living with Jesus. When you become accustomed to living with Jesus, it's easy to ignore Jesus. And when you're ignoring Jesus, you can remain neutral when it comes to Jesus. So first of all, we see Pilate trying to ignore Jesus in an attempt to maintain his neutrality. Secondly, we see Pilate trying to compromise with Jesus in an effort to remain neutral. You know, when you read the text that we read this morning, you can almost hear Pilate saying to Jesus, buddy, 
just give me something. Like I can get us out of this, Jesus. I can get us out of this. I know it looks sticky right now, but this is what I do. I'm a politician. Just give me something that I can work with. If you'll just bend on one of these issues, I promise I can get us out of this. But Jesus is not a pliable Savior. He is stubborn in his holiness. And he has no interest in compromising with Pilate or with anyone else. Because he is the same yesterday and today and forever. We might also find ourselves in a position where we're trying to get Jesus to compromise with us. We might do it around an an issue of the day, one of the vogue issues that the culture is talking about. We might look at Jesus, who is so stubborn in his biblical stances, and we might say, Jesus, if you could just give a little bit, Just give a little bit on this issue. I'm not talking about all the way. Just a little bit. If you just give a little bit, do you know how much our church could grow if you would just give a little bit on this issue? Do you know how much easier it would be to share the gospel if you would just give a little bit, if you would just bend a little bit? Be reasonable, Jesus, because the ends justify the means, don't they? Just give a little bit. Or if not on an issue of the day, I wonder if we would find ourselves this morning doing this in our personal lives at all. That you might know very well what Jesus says about things like greed and gossip, honesty, covetousness, anxiety. You know what Jesus says about these things. But there's this part of you that says, Jesus, come on, just give on this issue. You got to give a little bit. Quit taking such a hard line on this issue. I've got like 90% of these issues under control in my on this, on this, you just gotta give a little bit, bend a little bit. Because we know that if Jesus will compromise with us, if he'll bend a little bit to us, then we can still maintain that middle of the road and neutral posture. So Pilate tried to ignore Jesus, and Pilate tried to compromise with Jesus. The third thing that Pilate tried to do was to intellectualize with Jesus. And this, too, is an attempt to remain neutral. When you read through the text here, you can almost see these two, Pilate and Jesus, sparring back and forth. And it has the ring a little bit to it of a philosophical debate, doesn't it? So Pilate will say something, and then Jesus will respond, and then Pilate will respond, and Jesus will respond. And you can almost sense Pilate trying to parse every word, pick out every nuance. Let's keep this thing up here in the the theoretical, in the hypothetical, in the intellectual all in an attempt to stay neutral. Because if we keep it up here, way up in the intellectual, it doesn't require any commitment from us. Now, this rings very true with me because I think that I and we in the church love to intellectualize things. The hard truth for me is that more times than not, the reason that I love to intellectualize things is because as long as I am intellectualizing something, It doesn't require a step of obedience from me. As long as I can keep things nice and hypothetical, keep them in the realm of discussion and never really articulate the real issue that I'm having, it doesn't require anything of me. So, for example, it might look like this. 
We might entertain a discussion and have all kinds of, of dialogue around some theological issue. Maybe it's an issue about suffering in the world, and we might pose questions to one another about the classic mystery of how God can be both all-powerful and all-loving at the same time. Because if he's all-loving, he can't be all-powerful, because he, he, if he were all-powerful, then he would stop bad things from happening in the world. But if he's all-powerful, then he can't be all-loving, because he is choosing not to stop bad things from happening in the world. So we could go back and forth and debate this theological issue and talk about this element of biblical interpretation or whatever. The real question, though, at the heart of that is not about the theory of how God can be good and powerful at the same time. The real question I've got is, God, how could you let my mom get cancer? Well, what about this one? We could go through the Bible and look at all of the different ways that an issue like marriage is described in Scripture. And we could talk through the nuances of, of how Paul talked about marriage and the context in which he said those words and the context of Genesis when it's written about marriage and, and try to find all kinds of different loopholes and cultural things and, and that kind of thing to, to look at this issue when, when all we're really doing is intellectualizing. The real issue behind it is that, is that we can't deal with the fact that either... I or maybe someone that is close to me has same-sex attraction. Do you see it? We intellectualize as a means of self-protection so that it doesn't require us to take a stand. If we can keep things in the realm of the intellectual, we can still remain neutral. So like Pilate, we might want to examine Jesus or argue with Jesus or ignore Jesus. And we do this all because there is something inside of us that knows that the moment we drop this posture of neutrality and begin to embrace who Jesus truly is, then it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us some relationship. It's going to cost us some desire. It's going to cost us some dream. It's going to cost us some habit. It's going to cost us something. And in the end, that's what Pilate was afraid of. That he knew that if he came down on the side of Jesus, it was going to cost him and cost him dearly. You know, to me, the most haunting part of this passage that we read today is the very last verse. If you'll remember, Jesus and Pilate are going back and forth about what it means to be a king and whether or not he is. And Pilate asked Jesus, so you are a king then? And Jesus responds, you say that I'm a king. I was born for this. And I've come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asks this haunting question in John chapter 12, I'm sorry, John chapter 18, verse 38. Pilate says, what is truth? And I don't know how you hear that question in your mind. But to me, the question has an air of desperation about it. From a man who has spent so long trying to walk the middle road of every fence. From someone who desperately doesn't want to commit. From someone who is so confused he doesn't know which way is up and which way is down anymore. And the reason he's confused is because he hasn't stood for anything in so long. And so finally in a, in, in a, in a time of desperation and resignation he throws up his hands and he says, What even is truth? I don't even know what it is anymore. 
because they haven't stood for anything in so long. What is truth? And what Pilate doesn't realize in this moment is that the very definition of truth is standing right in front of him. It's the same book of John, just four chapters earlier, where Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And it's in this same book of John, just a few chapters before that, that Jesus says, if you want to know the truth, then the truth will make you free. What Pilate doesn't realize here is that in all his attempts of neutrality, that there is an invitation standing before him. And the invitation is, do you want to know the truth? Well, here it stands. But if you want to know the truth, then you cannot be neutral anymore. And so the invitation goes out to us this morning, friends. It goes out to you. Maybe through the course of the preaching of God's word, you've come to see that you have the tendency to try and keep Jesus at an arm's distance and remain neutral with him through over-intellectualizing. Or maybe you see a particular issue in your life that you're trying to get Jesus to compromise on. Or maybe you just have a general sense that for quite a while you have simply been ignoring Jesus and therefore remaining neutral. The truth that is Jesus Christ looks at you this morning and says, you cannot remain neutral with me any longer. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a a song of response. And perhaps the way that you need to respond is that you have never publicly declared that Jesus Christ is Lord. You've shown up at church maybe for years. And maybe you even have some beliefs about Christianity But you have largely tried to maintain a neutral posture and Jesus would look to you this morning and say, either I am Lord of all or I am not Lord at all. Whose side are you on? He would call you to stop being neutral. Maybe your response would be to come to one of your staff members that's going to be here and simply ask them to pray for you about a particular area of your life. Or maybe your response would be, to stop being neutral about an issue like church membership, that you recognize that this is the family of faith that the Lord has called you to. He wants you to be a part of this people so that you can help each other grow in Christ and stand for Jesus. I would encourage you to pray and ask the Lord how he would want you to respond during this time and then be obedient to his call. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask you and thank you that you are the truth, that we don't have to wonder about what truth is anymore. Here it stands in the person of Jesus Christ and here stands life and here stands the way to God. I pray, Lord, for all of us in this room who have sought a position of neutrality with you. Would you convict us that such a position is impossible and move us, Lord, move us. Move us to stop intellectualizing with you. Move us, to, move us to stop trying to get you to compromise. We pray that you would move us instead to a posture of surrender. May it be so. We pray that it would be in the name of Jesus. Amen.